There are many out there who have claimed to have captured a spirit in a photograph. In most cases, the occurrence was completely unintended, while in other cases, the person behind the camera has done so for that specific reason. Today, whenever we see a supposed spirit photograph, the spirit is either an orb, a wispy, mist-like substance, or a light-colored blob that is vaguely in a human-like shape. The ghost photos we have today are an entirely different animal than the spirit photos of the 18 and 1900s. In those times, the spirits in the photographs were far more pronounced and often possessed more of their earthly features. It seems that ghosts in general were just far more active during this time period. It's as though the veil was thinner during that time. And if you read the literature and immerse yourself in a bit of the popular culture of the time, it appears that this was indeed the case. This was the time period where the spiritualist movement was at its height. This was a time when it was highly fashionable to seek out and speak to spirits. And it seems that spirits were always available and willing to do so. During the height of the spiritualist movement, life almost took on more of a whimsical approach. Things seemed more mysterious. It seemed as if the supernatural was a part of everyday life. It was as if strange, unknown energies and forces were always at play. And for some, these forces were the very basis of some of the new technology that was coming their way. To show you just how far-reaching the ideals of spiritualism were, and how far-reaching the notion of the supernatural went, the United States government postponed funding for the implementation of the telegraph because a few of the members of the Senate wanted to explore the more supernatural implications of it. There was at least one member of the Senate, Cave Johnson from Tennessee, who refused to authorize the deal unless part of the intended funding went towards mesmerism research. If you aren't familiar with the term, mesmerism, which is also known as animal magnetism, is the belief that all living things have a powerful energy permeating from them, which many have likened to being similar to an electric current. It's often referred to as animal magnetism, as this energy is believed by some to be the very force that brings us all together. Franz Mesmer the 18th century German doctor who founded this theory believed that these forces could be manipulated and used to achieve physical results. Mesmer believed that these energies could be used for healing purposes. He believed that by utilizing hypnosis, the patient could be guided to align their energy thus helping them to heal any ailments or bring balance to their lives. While Mesmer acquired a considerably large following, his theory fell flat when having the scientific method applied to it. Cave Johnson, that surly senator from Tennessee, believed that the telegraph was tapping into those forces 
that Mesmer was alluding to. He believed that the telegraph was not powered by electricity, as that sneaky Samuel Morse had claimed, but that it was really using mesmerism. He believed that the forces at play being utilized by the telegraph had more founding in supernatural currents than electrical ones. Because Johnson believed that Morse had based his invention off of the theories of mesmerism, he wanted half of the funding that was appropriated to implementing the telegraph system to go to Theophilus Fisk, a prominent mesmerist at the time, so that he could carry out what the senator believed to be groundbreaking experiments in electrobiology. Now, while Mr. Johnson may have believed in the integrity of Fisk's work, throughout the rest of the world, Fisk was revered, even then, as a con artist and hack. Though today, we may often shake our heads at the antics of the spiritualist movement, it's important to remember that back during its height, it was a movement that many took quite seriously. It was also a movement whose majority of followers were both educated and wealthy. Its followers were from all walks of life, from shopkeepers to government officials. In fact, believe it or not, the White House itself was host to a menagerie of spiritualist figures and activities, most particularly seances. In fact, the White House's involvement with spiritualism leads into one of the more interesting tales of the movement, the tale of William Mumler, the famed spirit photographer who captured the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. When William Mumler began dabbling in photography, he certainly did not start out doing so with the hopes of capturing the supernatural. In fact, Mumler wasn't even a spiritualist, nor did he have any interest in the movement. Well, the latter was not exactly true. Mumler did have some interest in spiritualism, though the interest isn't what you may think. His interest didn't reside in the movement and beliefs thereof, but rather his interest fell upon a woman who claimed to be a psychic medium and who was also a devout spiritualist. Her name was Hannah Green, a vibrant young widower who not only had a penchant for the arts, but also had quite an entrepreneurial spirit as well. She had a photography studio a few blocks away from William's job as an engraver, and he would often catch sight of her through those large glass windows whilst running errands. Though William Mumler was a large and imposing looking figure. He was also quite shy, especially around women. And he could never find the courage to speak to the enchanting Hannah. No matter how much he wanted to talk to her during passing, he could never find the right words. And so would just pass by in silence. It soon got to the point that Hannah was all that William could think about, and he soon decided to enroll in a photography class. He thought that perhaps learning photography would provide a common ground and allow for conversation to come more naturally. He figured, if nothing else, at least it gave him something to do during those otherwise lonely Sunday afternoons. 
While William was considered by many to be highly successful in his trade, being one of the highest paid engravers in Boston, he was very unhappy. He was approaching 30 and was beginning to feel lost in life. Though he didn't hate his job, he didn't exactly enjoy it either. It wasn't that he found the act of engraving to be a wasteful use of his time. He just felt if he should be doing more with his life. He felt as though something were missing, as though he were meant for more than just sitting at a table printing letters on watches and silverware. He began to spend his free moments fretting over this, and the stress it must have caused him began to manifest itself physically as well. He began to be plagued by nausea, heartburn, and abdominal pain. It got to the point that the symptoms were interfering with William's ability to work. Desperate, William visited doctor after doctor, being prescribed a handful of remedies, but none of which was able to provide him any relief for his dyspepsia. Desperate, William visited doctor after doctor, being prescribed a handful of remedies, but none of which was able to provide him any relief for his dyspepsia. One day, while sick at home, William remembered a remedy his mother used to give him all those years ago when he was sick. It was a type of molasses that she was famous in the area for making confections with. You see, William's parents, in their day, had owned a very successful candy shop where all of the who's who of Boston liked to shop. The little candy store's specialty and biggest seller was a molasses candy that his mother had created. William had spent most of his childhood in the kitchen helping his mother create large batches of the stuff, and he remembered the recipe well. It was almost a muscle memory. Wondering if the molasses might help him now, he got to work cooking up a batch. After a few days of taking the dark, syrupy, and mildly offensive tasting liquid, William noticed that he had begun feeling a lot better. After the end of the week, all of his symptoms had left, never to return. Incredibly impressed by his little concoction, William wondered if it was something he could profit from. He soon took out an ad in the newspaper and spun a little tale of how a recipe from a late German doctor had come into his possession and how the recipe had proven itself to be a miracle cure-all for all matters of dyspepsia. Within weeks, the orders began pouring in, and soon, William began netting quite a handsome profit from his miracle cure. Within a matter of months, he was able to quit his job and open up his own engraving business. He purchased his own building, one that just so happened to be strategically placed two doors down from a certain little photography studio. You may be thinking that our dear Mr. Mumler had joined the ranks of one of the era's most popular professions, that of snake oil salesman. However, believe it or not, his miracle cure did have some merit to it. William Mumler's bottled miracle liquid was blackstrap molasses. Blackstrap molasses does have some medicinal properties. It's known as a natural remedy 
for peptic ulcers. William Mumler's new wealth and status of successful business owner gave him the boost of confidence he so needed. And before long, he and Hannah were spending quite a lot of time together in her studio. The studio was always a busy place as Hannah specialized in a highly sought after form of photography, memorial photography. Hannah would travel around the area photographing the dead, offering one last trinket of remembrance for the grieving. Hannah also comforted the bereaved by offering her mediumship services as well. When the grieving would come to the studio to pick up the framed portrait, Hannah would tell them that she could feel their loved one's presence. She would then offer her services. And if the family was agreeable and willing to pay the fee, Hannah would lead them into the back room and perform a seance. Hannah was also quite popular in the Boston spiritualist scene. And soon, William Mumler began finding himself becoming more and more open-minded towards the movement. He would go on to tell others of his certainty of her gifts, and he believed her to be authentic. However, he still couldn't consider himself a spiritualist. However, he still didn't consider himself to be a spiritualist or have any association to them outside of his relationship with Hannah. But all that was soon to change. In 1860, William Mumler would take a photograph that would bring him front and center in the spiritualism movement and change his life forever. One afternoon, while Hannah was out on site, William decided to play around in the studio and practice portrait photography. At the time, portrait photography of the living was still a relatively new art. Up until the 1840s, it was pretty much impossible to get a good photograph of a person. The problem lied in the face. The slightest blink or twitching would cause the whole image to come out as an unrecognizable blur. It wasn't until Samuel Morse, the same Samuel Morse of telegraphy fame, revolutionized photography with his method of portrait photography. With this, people could finally be photographed. Now, instead of patenting his technique, Morse offered to teach it to all who wanted to learn for a modest fee. Perhaps Mumler's photography teacher was one of Morse's protégés. Back in the little studio, William set up the camera, coated the glass plate with the chemicals needed, and placed it inside of the camera. He pulled off the cloth lens cap, readied for the photo, and quickly posed beside of a chair in front of the camera. A little while later, while preparing the photograph in the dark room, William encountered quite a shock. There, sitting next to him, in what had been the empty chair he had posed beside, was an opaque image of a young woman. As he studied the image more closely, he was struck by how that figure sitting beside of him bore a striking resemblance to his late cousin. At first, William was sure that he must have done something wrong. There was something he must have done to cause that strange ghost-like image. Perhaps he had mistakenly grabbed a plate that had already been used 
and hadn't yet been properly cleaned. The idea of making such a mistake left him feeling pretty embarrassed. But when Hannah returned later that afternoon, William showed her the mysterious photograph. Even if it was caused by a silly mistake, he thought it had sort of a ethereal beauty about it that Hannah would appreciate. William was also hoping that since Hannah was a far more experienced photographer, she might be able to tell him exactly what he did wrong to cause that thing and how to prevent it from happening next time. However, Hannah's reaction to the photo was quite the opposite of what William was expecting. When she saw the photo, her eyes widened and her hands began to shake with excitement. William, she shouted, do you realize what you've done? William, thinking his mistake must have been worse than he realized, began muttering an apology, but he was quickly interrupted. William, Hannah said, this isn't any mistake or trick of the eye. You have captured a spirit. Before William could process what Hannah had told him, she hurriedly left the studio, eager to spread the news amongst her spiritualist friends. While William wasn't quite sold on the idea that he had truly captured a spirit, his beloved's excitement was uplifting nonetheless. If nothing else, the photograph was unusual and could be quite the conversation starter. With that in mind, William framed the photograph and decided to display it on the wall of his engraving office. A few weeks later, a well-dressed and red-faced gentleman barged through the door of William's engraving office. Are you William Mumler? The man wheezed out between breaths. William looked up at the man and nervously replied, Yes, may I help you? The photograph, the man said. Would you produce it for me? Slightly taken aback by the odd request, William slowly got up out of his chair and took the portrait off of the wall and handed it to the stranger. Like Hannah, the man's eyes widened when he looked at it and his hands quivered with excitement. My God, he exclaimed, it's true. This is remarkable. Would you be willing to take my portrait, sir? William's head was swimming as this was all a bit too weird for his liking. However, he concluded that mysterious man must be an acquaintance of Hannah's, and he certainly did not want to say or do anything that would jeopardize Hannah's feelings towards him. So he hesitantly agreed. I must let you know, sir, William said, I'm not sure that this effect is something I could ever replicate. I believe it to have been a mere oddity, but I'm happy to take your portrait. Before William knew it, he and the mysterious man were walking side by side towards Hannah's studio. When they entered, Hannah gave a warm and dramatic welcome. She leaned in and told her friend that she could feel the presence of spirits around him. She then planted a kiss upon William's cheek and led him by the arm to the camera. There, she had set up a lovely background with a long velvet curtain as a backdrop and an ornate chair for the subject to sit in for the session. The strange man walked up to William, giving him a hefty pat on the back and then sat in the chair. What should I do? He asked William. Just try to make yourself comfortable and sit as still as you can. 
The process will take several minutes, but try to relax, William replied. William prepped the camera, coated the glass plate with the necessary chemicals, slid the plate inside of the camera, took a deep breath, and let it work its magic. A little while later, William Mumler went into the dark room and shortly afterwards came back out producing a most peculiar piece. There, standing behind his well-dressed subject, was the wispy yet elegant image of a woman. She was a dainty and enchanting figure, and she seemed to have her arms draped lovingly around the man's shoulders. When the man gazed upon the image, his reaction was powerful. He gasped and covered his eyes with his left hand and began to shake. William could see tears streaming down the man's face, and he began to feel very nervous. He felt as though he should say something, but he couldn't think of what to say. Suddenly, the man spoke, and he said with a trembling voice, It's her! My God, it's her! I don't know how you did it, but I believe this to be genuine. The man then wiped his eyes, stood up, and walked out of the studio, all the while clutching the photograph tightly against his chest. The man who came to visit William Mumler that day was H.R. Gardner. Gardner was Boston's spiritualist leader and was quite a famous name among spiritualists of the time. He was well known for his promotion and hosting of Kate and Margaret Fox, known by many as the Fox Sisters. The Fox Sisters were the darlings of the movement and could perhaps be attributed to the movement's quick growth and success. However, they were also a source of great embarrassment for Gardner. As when the sisters performed their spirit communication talents for Harvard, they were quickly discredited and mocked by the professors and scientists in attendance. An occurrence which Gardner believed tarnished his reputation and the reputation of spiritualism in general. But Gardner believed the spirit photography of William Mumler was genuine and something which would prove once and for all the existence of spirits and life after death. However, before he made this discovery public, he felt the need to put Mumler's spirit photography to the test and have it verified by another professional. Gardner knew that he could not risk another public humiliation as he did that day with the Fox sisters. He decided to call upon acquaintance and professional photographer James Wallace Black to further scrutinize the work of William Mumler. A few days after the visit and impromptu photography session with Hannah's strange friend, William Mumler received another surprise visitor in his office. The man introduced himself as James Wallace Black. William immediately straightened up in his chair, as this was a name he recognized and admired. James Wallace Black was the first person ever to attempt aerial photography. He had captured the very first bird's eye view of a city and had bravely done so in the basket of a hot air balloon. William was astounded 
that this man was in his office and asking for him. Black told William that he had heard about his peculiar and so-called spirit photographs and wondered if William would be so kind as to take his portrait and allow him to observe his process. William happily agreed, and the two soon walked over to the photography studio. What William didn't know was that Black was trying to expose him as a fraud. Though he was an acquaintance of Gardner, Black despised spiritualism, seeing it as just a stage for con artists. And since William was an amateur, Black knew his knowledge of photography and all of its tricks far surpassed William's. He figured exposing William as a fraud would be an easy task. However, that is not at all how things worked out. Black oversaw every aspect of the shoot. He set up the camera, cleaned and applied the chemicals to the glass plate himself, and came up with his own pose. Everything in the shoot was carefully controlled by Black. Once the photo was taken, Black joined William in the darkroom and oversaw the development process as well. He did so with a smile, as he was certain that the picture produced would contain his image and his image alone. However, Black was shocked when he gazed upon the developed image, as there, standing behind him, was a semi-transparent, bright white figure who bore a striking resemblance to his late father. Black stood there for a moment, dumbfounded. The only words he could work himself up to say were, how much for the photograph? William smiled kindly and gently told him that no payment was necessary. It was a gift. James Wallace Black walked out of the studio that day in a haze of confusion. He'd been so careful. He had overseen every single aspect of the shoot. How could William Mumler have been able to sneak in this image without him having noticed? Black had no choice but to report back to Gardner that he had not caught Mumler tampering with the image, and that he honestly had no clue how those peculiar, wispy figures were being produced. It was at this moment that William Mumler's life changed forever. Ecstatic over the news of his friend's findings, H.R. Gardner began spreading the news of this most wondrous discovery. The popular Boston spiritualist newspaper, Banner of Light, ran a page-long article about William Mumler's most astounding gift. The article was soon picked up by the Boston Journal and even reprinted by the New York Times. Before William knew it, his little office was soon flooded with people wanting a spirit portrait of their very own. At first, William was utterly mortified by all the press his pictures were receiving. He was worried it would tarnish his reputation he feared becoming a laughingstock. And it all felt too strange. 
and William did not like it. However, William did like Hannah. And when he saw how enthusiastic she had become about his new status in the spiritualist community, and how this new status seemed to strengthen her affections for him, he decided to go along with it. Before long, the demand for William's spirit portraits was so great that he shuttered his engraving business and became a full-time spirit photographer. Soon, he and Hannah married, and the husband and wife team became celebrities in the spiritualist community. Hannah would lead seances and communicate with the departed. Then, William would lead the participants over to the portrait studio and take their pictures. Those in attendance would rejoice over seeing their departed loved ones standing behind or beside of them, often being held in a ghostly embrace. For years, together, William and Hannah soothed the broken hearts of the grieving by allowing them the opportunity to connect with departed loved ones. However, it was William's portraits that were the centerpiece of the enterprise. It gave so many comfort seeing the image of their dearly departed, knowing that they are still with them, offering everlasting love. As their fame spread, more and more of the nation's elite traveled to the studio, desperate to connect with loved ones lost. One of those clients would propel them into international fame. One day, a solemn woman, garbed all in black, timidly walked into their studio. The woman had a certain energy about her, and it was apparent to both William and Hannah that she was carrying a great sadness. Now, despite the heavy feeling of sadness she gave off, the mysterious woman seemed calm and spoke quite elegantly. She asked if William had any openings that afternoon. And William kindly offered to do a session for her at that very moment. He led her back into the portrait studio and she gracefully sat down in the ornate chair. William readied the camera and the woman folded her arms on her lap and nervously stared into the camera. A short while later, as William was developing the photograph, he was shocked by the figure that was standing behind her, looking lovingly down at her. The spirit looked exactly like the late president, Abraham Lincoln. It was at that very moment that William realized who this woman was. He had unknowingly been hosting Mary Todd Lincoln. When he showed Mrs. Lincoln the photograph, a warm smile crept across her face. She ran her finger over the figure and graciously thanked William for the precious gift he had given her. After Mrs. Lincoln left, William hurried back into the dark room to develop more copies of this monumental photograph. He had just captured the ghost of Abraham Lincoln, the first spirit portrait of a figure that was almost universally recognizable. Well, as you can imagine, when word got out about the photograph, William became world famous, and his spirit photography business soon brought he and his beloved wife a great amount of wealth, purpose, 
and happiness. The downside to having such fame is that it attracts all types of people to you. Those who celebrate you and those who despise you. During the 1860s, police forces in both England and America were working hard to crack down on spiritualist charlatans. While many believed in the authenticity of William Mumler's spirit portraits, there were many more who saw it as a fraud. Since William Mumler had become one of the darlings of spiritualism, the police zeroed in on him. They were certain that if they could bring down such a renowned figure as William Mumler, they would in essence take down the entire movement, which they believed to be nothing more than a con artist's playground. In 1869, investigators got just the break they were looking for in their quest to expose William Mumler as a fraud. Several people filed complaints stating that they recognized some of those so-called spirits as actually being that of those still living. They were certain that Mumler had some sort of process where he was able to alter and transpose those portraits onto the ones he takes of his clients. The idea seemed incredibly plausible, and just a few short weeks later, William Mumler was arrested and taken to New York City to be put on trial. The trial of William Mumler was perhaps one of the first trials to become a media circus. Reporters from all over filled the courtroom and recorded and elaborated on every antic. During the proceedings, William's followers would faint at the allegations, while others claimed to channel the spirits of those who had been photographed, who pleaded innocence on William's behalf. Of course, the spectacle all of this created did not bode well for William's image, and he realized this. So, perhaps, following the advice of his lawyer, William remained mostly silent during his trial. The trial itself was quite a show, as witnesses for both the defense and prosecution put on passionate performances. The defense called forth all of the respectable and elite members of society who had procured William's spirit photography services. Those on the stand passionately proclaimed his innocence and that he was indeed in possession of a truly unique and magnificent gift. Among these witnesses was a judge who adamantly stated that he saw no indications of fraud during his sessions with William Mumler. The prosecution, not to be outdone, brought in a most powerful and persuasive witness of their own, one who was an expert in such manners, and one who was well acquainted with the inner workings of fraudulent showmanship. None other than P.T. Barnum himself. P.T. Barnum dramatically stated how he believed Mumbler was a charlatan. And like all the other darlings of the spiritualist movement, he was preying upon and taking advantage of those whose judgment was clouded by grief. Barnum accused William Mumbler of staging ghosts and even went as far as to produce his own spirit portrait he had staged himself. The portrait showed Barnum smugly standing beside the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. When the portrait 
was shown to those in attendance, the court audience let out a collective gasp. Things were not looking good for William Mumler. After several exhausting weeks, the trial concluded, and the court went into recess as the judge went to his chambers to settle upon his verdict. Hours later, the judge had reached his decision, one that would shock most who were in attendance. The judge told the court that he believed that William Mumler was a fraud and that he was indeed preying upon the grief-stricken. However, he could not, in good conscience of the law, render a guilty verdict. While the testimonies produced by the prosecution were very convincing, none of those who testified were able to provide any concrete evidence that William Mumler was tampering with the photographs to create fraudulent spirit imagery. The judge said that despite his own personal feelings, he had no other choice than to give the verdict of not guilty and acquit William Mumler. The court's reaction was a mixture of jeers and cheers. The spiritualists in attendance viewed this as a victory. A victory not just for Mumler, but for their beliefs. But for William Mumler, there was no real victory in the matter. Though he was pleased to have his freedom and to be rid of that horrid jail cell that he had spent his time out of court in, he was still a ruined man. He had accumulated thousands of dollars in legal fees, which left him destitute. His reputation had been forever tarnished. Even though he was acquitted, the evidence produced by the prosecution and reported by the media had left him a fraud in the eyes of the general public. He was no longer the kindly man soothing the hearts of the grief-stricken. Now, he was a predator, conning the vulnerable. While there were a few loyal clients who repeatedly gave William Mumler their patronage for a few years afterwards, including Mary Todd Lincoln, William Mumler's business never recovered. He spent the rest of his days barely scraping by and had even lost the favor of his beloved Hannah. For the rest of his remaining years, William stayed devoted to photography, just not of the spirit variety. Believe it or not, he was actually quite influential in the field of photography, and he came up with something that is known as the Mumler process. He devised a way in which photoelectrotype plates could be produced and printed as easily, if not more so, than woodcuts. This right here allowed newspapers and magazines to easily include photographs in their articles. All thanks to William Mumler. If you get a chance, look up William Mumler. M-U-M L-E-R, and take a look at some of his spirit portraits. Then you can decide for yourself whether you think Mumler's spirit portraits were authentic or if you think he created a clever double exposure process to create those ghostly images. Of course, there is another theory about those ghostly images. Some believe that it was actually Hannah Mumler who was behind those wispy images. And William, at least in the beginning, was just as unwitting 
as the rest of the public. Spirit photography today is still considered to be a very iffy piece of evidence when it comes to proving the existence of ghosts. Since just about everyone carries a phone in their pocket now, you would think there would be more raw images of ghosts now than ever. People arguably take more pictures now than ever before. So why do we not see a rise in ghostly apparitions in these photos? The main reason behind this is the advent of high-definition cameras. Almost all of our cameras today are HD, and this is key to why there are fewer and fewer raw, ghostly photographs. An HD camera provides more image information, which means we can now easily detect shadows, recognize reflections, and identify dust particles and bugs. It lessens the possibility of any grainy artifacts, which all in all means, it lessens the chances of pareidolia from happening. Now, there are, of course, always the gloriously odd exceptions out there. There are still those rare, raw photographs that contain those odd, smoky-like mists and strange-looking figures. There is the saying that the camera picks up more wavelengths than the human eye, which could possibly account for some of those strange exceptions. What do you think? Do you think spirits can be caught on camera? Or do you think it's all just a case of misidentified natural phenomenon or pareidolia? I want to thank you for listening and hope you enjoy hearing about one of history's little mysteries, William Mumler. <laughs>